there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 85, The Periphery of a Fallen Empire. In the historical record, the great upheavals of 1917 Russia are understandably focused on the capital of Petrograd. After all, that had been the epicenter of the autocracy, which had entertained notions of absolute power, and ergo there wasn't a lot of competition in terms of prominence among the rest of the nation's secondary cities. Moscow was the exception, but in that case, the old capital largely experienced the same convulsions as Petrograd. So, when the provisional government was first established, followed by the Bolshevik regime later, the key prize to be won was Petrograd. And for the Bolsheviks, it was to be their early acquisition of both capitals, as well as most of the major cities of Russia's core, that would secure them their future as a viable state in the civil war to come. But away from the heartlands were the vast expanses of the Russian Empire, which Lenin had referred to as the Prison of Nations. These regions played host to multitudes who suddenly saw their chance to escape. In addition, there were the dislocated loyalists to the old order, who, if not entirely on board with rolling back the clock to 1914, were intent on stopping the Red Menace and saving their conception of Russia. Basically, today I'm aiming to fill in what these various places, factions, and peoples had been up to during 1917 and how they reacted to the October Revolution. The fall of the Tsar and the resulting liberalization of society had not just unleashed the forces of the far left, it had also unleashed a tide of nationalism from the various non-Russian ethnicities. And the change in government wasn't just a new boss same as the old boss either. The provisional government and some of its first acts had officially dissolved the Akhrana and generally avoided ruling through armed force. This meant that in dealing with nationalists, the government was going to be playing with a much weaker hand. A more humane one, definitely, but weaker nevertheless. The most advanced of these movements was one that should be familiar to long-term listeners, Poland. That westernmost outpost of the empire was also under full occupation by the central powers by 1917, and the provisional government entertained few illusions about getting it back. With the Germans and Austrians already promising the Poles some kind of independent state, the provisional government matched that offer in March 1917 and declared their support for Polish independence. It wasn't enthusiastic, but there was little prospect of winning it back militarily, so it was offering away something that had already been lost. The reason that no-brainer offer was consequential in the short term, though, was because when it came to territory still in the grasp of Petrograd, the provisional government was far less accommodating, and that provided a little bit of hypocrisy that it got dragged for. The two big nationalist flashpoints in early 1917 that the government actually was forced to deal with were Finland and Ukraine, as both had significant movements calling for more autonomy, demands flatly refused by the government. There would be no concessions on autonomy. There wouldn't even be concessions on using native languages in local schools. Now, the Finns especially had a good legal case to make that the new government didn't have authority over them, as the Tsar had ruled that country as a separate grand duchy, not totally integrated into the Russian Empire. The provisionals didn't see things that way at all, and upon first seizing power in March 1917, specifically laid out that they were taking all of the Tsar's authority, which extended to his Grand Duchy as well. The Finns, who had organized a parliament of their own to represent them, attempted to negotiate their way out of Russia. Unlike in many other non-Russian parts of the empire, the Finns had a developed sense of nation, and despite the government's desire to delay on addressing the issue, 
it was obvious to everybody that a negotiated exit would be the less destructive course of action. Finland had fallen victim to the same food and resource shortages affecting everywhere else, and the population was done with Russian overlordship. There was almost an agreement made when the Finns offered the Russians a kind of veto power over their foreign policy and military decision-making in exchange for internal self-governance, but since Finland was also wanting to reduce its military presence on the front lines of the ongoing war, the provisionals got suspicious that the Finns wouldn't just become autonomous and then renege on their obligations to Petrograd. Finland had friends in Russia in the form of the far left, though. The summertime Congress of the Soviets formally called on the provisional government to begin negotiating Finland's full independence with no qualifications. And the Bolsheviks were active in Finland, encouraging them to forcefully break away from Russia. Finland also acted as a safe haven for those wanted by the authorities, most notably by Lenin, when he had to skip town after the bungled July uprising briefly brought the hammer down on the Bolsheviks. The Finnish parliament declared independence on June 23rd, assuming that the Russian Soviets had their back. Little problem, the Soviets had intended for a negotiated exit. This was unilateral by the Finns. When this was brought to the Finnish parliament's attention, they responded that they had gone too far and couldn't turn the declaration back around. The Soviet leadership then turned around and supported the government shifting troops into Finland. On July 21st, the parliament was forcibly dissolved and the moderate Russian socialists were left to publicly hem and haw at how the Finns had screwed themselves over. If you remember back in episode 37, I discussed the Finnish civil war that occurred after the Russian pullout later in the year. Well, it was pretty much a direct result of this bungled attempt at negotiating an exit. With the attempt at a Finnish government dispersed and undermined, the left and right elements of it operated parallel and in opposition to each other leading to street fighting in the autumn that only got worse. The parliament had re-established itself by then, but could not control events on the streets. The country would immediately take advantage of Lenin's declaration on November 2, 1917, giving the right of self-determination to all of the empire's peoples on how they wanted to proceed, including declaring independence, something that the Finns would act on. By December, they were severed from Russia and facing that internal power struggle I covered last year. The other big area of nationalist tension was Ukraine. This region was, no offense intended to the Finns, way more critical to Russia. The country had 22% of the empire's population, famously fertile soil, and especially in the Donbass region to the east, large mineral resources. Petrograd simply couldn't walk away from it. Which, yes, I know that Lenin walked away from it a year later, but he was operating with a totally different set of priorities, and even then took it back shortly after. The provisional government, still wanting to be a useful Entente ally and war contributor, couldn't let the place go. A type of national government had coalesced in Kiev on March 4, 1917, officially called the Ukrainian National Council, but typically referred to as the Rada. This government was dominated by liberals and moderate socialists and was in favor of a federated Russian state where they themselves could administer Ukraine but still be part of the greater Russian community. The Rada did have to be careful in its conduct compared to their counterparts in Finland, though. Ukraine was a fully integrated part of Russia, and the members of the Rada were kind of upstarts without the same standing as the Finnish parliament. Even more of a problem for them was the fact that Ukraine had not yet been able to enjoy a full national awakening sufficient for an autonomous Ukraine being an idea to actually rally around. 
the country was certainly dominated by ethnic Ukrainians, but the vast majority of those guys were peasants who didn't yet have a completely developed sense of national identity. Oh sure, they weren't happy about the worsening conditions, and over three-quarters of rural inhabitants supported the Ukrainian branch of the SRs, and also the All-Ukrainian Peasant Union, a group that, uh, just as its name implies, was a party built to advance the interests of the peasants. But the grievances that drove them were similar to their counterparts in Russia proper. They wanted more land, specifically land from the gentry. If nationalists wanted to give them that, great. If internationalist socialists wanted to do it, also great. They certainly preferred their leaders to be from their communities, speaking Ukrainian and knowing their customs, but that was for the purpose of looking out for their larger interests. They didn't yet buy into the idea of a separate nation that they then be part of and have a stake in. The larger cities were a lot more complex, as ethnic Russians, Poles, and Jews formed the bulk of their populations. In these places, Soviets were formed just as in Russia, and their priorities were more focused on improving the conditions of the proletariat as a whole, rather than securing regional autonomy. Plus, the great landholding elites were Poles and Russians, with the Poles predominating in the West, the Russians in the East. What bureaucracy still functioned was also staffed by ethnic Russians as well. This basically left the Rada with the support of Ukrainian liberals, who were a thin enough segment of society that they adopted land redistribution as a key plank in their platform to try and drum up some populist support. This was going to be a reoccurring theme for the Rada's existence, as that group's PR issues led them to adopt whatever reforms might be popular with the peasants or the soldiers of the country. But at first, the Rada kept its demands to the central government small. In May 1917, they submitted a package of reforms to the provisional government. Internal autonomy, separate Ukrainian army units away from the front line, the, the local bureaucracy being cleared out so actual Ukrainians could be hired on, those sorts of things. No breakaways, no total withdrawal from the war, no economic decoupling. The provisional government, with the backing of the Petrograd Soviet of the time, shut all that down. Prince Lvov, usually a magnanimous fellow, set up a rigged commission that detailed how every one of those demands could not be legally accommodated by the government. The Rada responded on June 10th by issuing the First Universal. This grandly titled document was a statement of freedom based on the old Cossack traditions, on paper establishing an autonomous Ukraine. There would be a National Assembly to handle the legislative side, while the Office of General Secretariat was announced to take over the bureaucracy. Whereas the civil servants up to that point had answered up the chain of command to Petrograd, they were now to report to Kiev. This really didn't go over well back in Petrograd. This happened around the same time the Finns were declaring their own independence, and the government was fixated on launching a summer offensive. Prince Lvov's government didn't have a lot of options, though, and a three-man delegation, which included Kerensky, was dispatched to calm things down. On July 2nd, an agreement was made with the government accepting the Rada's new government setup, provided they remain within Russia and continue to otherwise follow Petrograd's lead. This was big and caused no small tension back in the capital, as the Black 100s and more right-wing liberals gnashed their teeth at losing influence in such a critical region. This, combined with the addition of moderate socialists to the cabinet, led to three cadet ministers resigning from Lvov's cabinet on July 4th destabilizing the government just on the eve of a Bolshevik uprising and undermining Lvov's efforts at presenting his government as the face of a united Russia. And the fun didn't stop there, either. 
Other regions became restive to varying degrees as well. The Baltics were a region destined to break away, as I already covered in episode 37. The Lithuanians hadn't had much of a nationalist movement, but had for a while been occupied by the Germans, who busied themselves with carefully making one to distance the region from Russia, while also allowing them to dominate it. Latvia's urban proletariat supported the Soviets, but also was close to the front lines, and indeed, by the latter part of 1917, had also been occupied by the Germans. Estonian authorities would also clash with the provisional government, and most of the cities would go over to the left SRs and Bolsheviks upon the October Revolution, only to see them ejected with the arrival of the Germans in 1918. Further south, Belarusia was an area of least concern for the central authorities, as the difficult geography of the area, splintered communities, and the deplorable lack of education meant that inhabitants were not terribly well-versed in the ideas of national independence. The peasants, of course, wanted to break up larger estates and take more self-governance into their hands, but that sentiment was so universal, it could barely be considered a sign of nationalism, more a normal state of the peasantry in 1917. The Caucasus was going to prove to be a much more active region. The Georgians and Armenians all had national identities, while the Azerbaijanis fell back on pan-Turkic and pan-Islamic ideas to rally the local masses. As the regime began to disintegrate, they all found themselves isolated from central authority. In Georgia, politics were dominated by the Mensheviks, oddly enough, this being the only region that they ever really came into their own. They used Marxism as a vehicle of grievance for the Georgians to unify against the oppressive remnants of the czarist officialdom, and largely ruled through the Soviets in the region and maintained allegiance to the capital through the Petrograd Soviet. They understandably viewed the Bolshevik takeover with no small alarm, and they effectively broke contact after the October Revolution. Over in Azerbaijan, the local notables organized assemblies to work with the provisional government, and while central authority collapsed, just as it did elsewhere, uh, there wasn't any one group capable of stepping into the vacuum just yet. The October Revolution, though, did lead to a Bolshevik takeover of the Baku Soviet in November 1917, which spurned many Azerbaijanis to throw in with their neighbors in fear of being dominated by the communists. The Armenians were in a more complicated position, as they were well aware of the genocide being committed by the Turkish Empire to the south against their ethnic brethren. While Armenian nationalists certainly organized, they were determined to keep the provisional government as a friend and, more importantly, as a protector. Just as Russia was still at war with Germany and Austria-Hungary, it had also been at war with the Turkish Empire since it had joined World War I back in late 1914. The Russians had consistently gotten the better of the Ottoman armies and had advanced into eastern Anatolia, but the harsh terrain had meant there had never been a conclusive breakthrough. Troop numbers in the region had peaked around 750,000, but after the fall of the Tsar, the army began a steady disintegration. With the prospect of the Bolsheviks taking the region and the Turkish armies moving in from the south, the three ethnic groups unified into the Transcaucasian Commissariat on November 11, 1917. The body considered itself part of the Russian Republic ruled by the provisional government, which obviously didn't mean a lot as that government had mostly ceased to exist. They did manage to make a separate armistice with the Turks in December 1917, but I'm going to be upfront. With the withdrawal of the Russian army, the entire region was wholly at the mercies of the larger powers. The Turks would launch excursions into the area as far as Baku in early 1918, the Georgians would try to link up with the Germans, 
and the Armenians would be forced to hunker down and pray that the Turks didn't try and export the Armenian genocide to the Russian part of their nation. Central Asia was the last big part of the empire to fall away for a time. For most of the native Muslim inhabitants, regardless of ethnicity, the decline in central authority created conditions for de facto autonomy as local communities dispensed with the negotiations and wrangling that had predominated in the western regions and simply resumed going their own way as they had before the arrival of the Russians. Some of the Russian-educated Cossack aristocracy did get together and formed a political party, the Alash Orda, which, like all the other movements, started by asking for autonomy, but by September 1917 had gone out on its own and formed its own state. It would encompass most of modern Kazakhstan and would support the whites during the Civil War. But its leaders struggled to assert their authority over such a vast region when they themselves didn't really have an amazing claim to leadership to start with. The place where the real action was in Central Asia was the city of Tashkent in modern Uzbekistan. Much of the population consisted of Russian immigrants, and the city had established a Soviet, which engaged in a running political feud with the city Duma, which itself reported to the provisional government. The Bolshevik promises of empowering local Soviets pleased the members of Tashkent's Soviet, and after July 1917, they came to control the body. After the October Revolution, it became the center of power in the region, at least among the communities of Russian settlers, as the prior government's presence melted away in the aftermath. All right, so those were the big pieces on the board that were, you know, based on nationality or just local autonomy. But lurking out there was also the old officer corps, or at least part of it. The man who found himself in charge of the Russian army in the aftermath of the October Revolution was one General Nikolai Dukonin. He had been appointed chief of staff at the recommendation of General Alexeev after the Kornilov affair, and he had been busying himself trying to manage the army's disintegration back at the Stavka in Mogilev since then. His sympathies were entirely with the provisional government, though, and on November 19th in the aftermath of the Bolshevik takeover, he helped engineer the escape of General Kornilov and his supporting officers from their imprisonment in Baikov, a town just south of Mogilev. Dukonin also defied Lenin's wishes, as during a meeting in Petrograd on November 22nd, he was ordered to reach out to the Germans to request an armistice. This he steadfastly refused to do, which points, I guess, on personal convictions, but that really was an insane stance to take. On the 27th, Dukonin was dismissed and replaced with Nikolai Krylenko, a Bolshevik leader who had been prominent on the Military Revolutionary Committee in Petrograd. One snag for Lenin, though, was that Dukonin had returned to Mogilev in the meantime and refused to step aside. Krylenko gathered a force of soldiers and proceeded south to take over the Stavka by force. Dukonin sent out a call for aid, but the units that did answer his call were rerouted by the Bolshevik-controlled railway workers and wound up being shuttled south into Ukraine. On December 1st, Dukonin attempted to flee to Kiev by car, but was halted on the roads by a checkpoint set up by a local Soviet. He resigned himself to what was coming and returned to Mogilev. He telegraphed Kornilov, who himself was still hanging around in Baikov, to get the hell out of there and take a Loyalist cavalry unit in the area with him. On December 3rd, the Red Troops arrived and apprehended Dukonin, roughing him up and executing him via an impromptu firing squad. To the south, Kornilov and his supporting officers, most notably Anton Denikin, resolved to head to the southeast and make for the lower reaches of the Don River, which emptied out into the Sea of Azov. Basically, it's the region of Russia, just to the southeast of the modern border with Ukraine. 
This choice of destination was important because the region was seen as distant from the centers of red power and close to the Cossack hosts. Which does remind me, I should probably give a little more detail into just who the Cossacks were at this point in time and why they were important, because they're going to come up a lot. The Cossacks were a group of people who had since time immemorial lived on the open steppes of South Russia, Ukraine, and Siberia. They were semi-nomadic communities who had a long history of self-governance, with the largest bodies organizing into hosts. The Tsars had used these guys as additional muscle for their armies, not seeing much benefit in fighting costly wars of suppression, but definitely seeing benefit in having ready-made regiments of talented cavalry. This meant that these hosts did keep a fairly separate existence from the rest of the nation. They had their own turf, their own cities, their own chain of governance. And that included privileges of self-government that the rest of the empire didn't get. One caveat to that was that they didn't get continuous territorial states, so intermixed with them were normal Russian communities. So there lived in proximity to them people who didn't have the same perspective of the world, and that was something that made the Cossack hosts an imperfect refuge. They weren't really functioning territorial units as we'd understand them, and so were terribly unstable. So when I mentioned Cossack troops being used as the vanguard of counter-revolution in the past several episodes, it's because of two reasons. One, these guys lived apart from the rest of the nation and thus considered themselves a people apart. The other is that their privileges extended first through the Tsar and then through the provisional government. They were conservative and didn't see as much benefit to the revolution as the rest of the empire did. They especially weren't keen on the Bolsheviks, who were almost guaranteed to change their way of life which was true. Ergo, they were seen as a good first destination for the anti-red factions, whom I will refer to now as the Whites, for simplicity's sake, to find refuge and maybe also some capable fighters. But the road to the Don Cossack host would not be an easy one. The officers were fugitives and were being actively hunted. Most of them, like Denikin, opted to disguise themselves as civilians and try to make it by train or wagon as best they could. Kornilov, on the other hand, joined up with the cavalry that Dukonin had sent and started the trip on horseback, which would not be a pleasant experience as this was the interior of Russia in early December. And again, Kornilov was a fugitive and was being actively hunted by red troops. The regiment of cavalry was caught under the guns of an armored train and scattered by machine gun fire to the northeast of Kiev, whereupon they fled into the woods, where another force of reds was waiting in ambush. The remnants fled into frozen swampland in northeast Ukraine, suffering from lack of food, worn-out equipment, and insufficient winter clothing. Kornilov finally gave up on the dramatic route of riding to the dawn on horseback, dismissed the regiment, and made the second half of the trip disguised as a peasant. By December 19th, he had reached Novocherkask, the capital of the dawn Cossacks, and linked up with many of his fellow officers. Already there was... Awkwardly, General Alexeev, the man who had ordered Kornilov's arrest at the end of his aborted coup attempt. Also, there was General Alexei Kaladin, who was an army officer who hailed from the Don Cossacks and had assumed the position of Adaman, or effectively the leader of the entire host. He had already been fairly active in the region, having deployed troops to fight Red forces in Donetsk to the northwest of the Don River in eastern Ukraine during mid-November, and crushing a Red uprising in Rostov on December 10th. He also granted the non-Cossack officers permission to begin recruiting a volunteer army in the region. The problems facing these guys, though, were enormous. They were very much a collection of officers without a true army, the Cossacks being able to offer only a small force at first. 
there was scarcely a private among them to boss around. Then there was the fact that, as I mentioned a moment ago, there were a lot of Russian communities among the Cossacks who did have grievances and were willing to give the revolution a chance. And then there was the collapse of the Caucasus Front to the south. These events coincided with that army's disintegration, and tens of thousands of out-of-control troops were streaming northwards through the Don region from the south. The evacuation was totally unorganized, and the troops were riddled with typhus, they were starving, and they just created a general sense of chaos throughout the entire region that they passed through. There was also the matter of material support for what troops they did have. Alexei was urged to put out a call for volunteers. The earlier the better, since every day that passed meant the Bolsheviks grew more secure. Alexei had no choice but to refuse, though, pointing out that there weren't enough provisions or funds on hand to support the 500 officers already in Novocherkask. One solution was prominent officers heading out and seeking nearby allies, mostly to the south, in the Kuban region, just to the east of the Crimea. That area was both helpfully close and had its own Cossack host. They would do their best to get local officials and Cossacks onto the emerging white side and maybe even pick up some troopers fleeing the Caucasus. These efforts to expand white influence were complicated by the competing influences of Alexeyev and Kornilov, both of whom presumed to command the emerging army. What transpired was that command was split on January 7, 1918, with Alexeyev being the political face of the movement, as well as the manager of finances and presumably logistics, while Kornilov would handle the actual commanding of the troops. And at the start of 1918, this was still very much an embryonic command, with the volunteer army only having grown to some 5,000 troops by then. They were motivated ones, yes, but their funding depended on moderates from Russia's interior shuttling funds south to them while getting past the watchful Bolsheviks. It was not an optimal situation, and while it would improve as the year went along, their early survival depended greatly on the fact that the Bolshevik government had way bigger priorities through much of 1918. Because as we will pick up with the opening battles of the Civil War, even the slightest pressure almost brought them to the brink of collapse. But that will have to wait, as next week when we pick up, Lenin will be desperately seeking a way to close out the war with the Central Powers so that he could focus on the new war at home. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.